Section 3 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 13. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in September 2021. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 13. Section 3. The Arrival at Babylon by Georg Moritz Ebers Georg Ebers, distinguished as an Egyptian archaeologist and as a historical novelist, was born in Berlin in 1837. At ten years of age he was sent to school in Keilhau, where under the direction of Fröbel he was taught the delights of nature and the pleasure of study. His university career in Göttingen was interrupted by a long and serious illness. During his convalescence, he pursued with avidity his study of Egyptian archaeology, and with neither dictionary nor grammar to help him in the mastery of hieroglyphics, he acquired to some degree this ancient language. Later, under the learned Lepsius, he became a thorough and brilliant scholar in the science which is his speciality. It was at this epoch that he wrote An Egyptian Princess, for the purpose of realizing to himself a period which he was studying. Thirteen years later, his second work, Warda, was published. When restored to health, he launched himself with enthusiasm on the life of a university professor. He taught for a time at Jena, and in 1870 removed to Leipzig. He has made several journeys into Egypt, sharing his experiences with the public. The Egyptian Princess is Eber's most representative romance. It is perhaps the subtle quality of popularity, rather than exceptional merit, which has ensured its success. The scene of the story is laid at the time when Egypt drew its last free breath, unconscious that, at the very height of its intellectual vigour, its national life was to be cut off, the time when Amasis held the throne of the pharaohs and Cambyses was king of Persia. Warda gives a picture of Egypt under one of the Ramesses. Homo Sum, a tale of the desert anchorites in the 4th century, is filled with the spirit of the early Christians. In the story of Die Schwestern, the sisters, Ebers takes the reader to Memphis, the temple of Serapis, and the palace of the Ptolemies. The ethical element enters largely into the novel Der Kaiser, the Emperor, of Christianity in the time of Hadrian. In the Frau Bürgermeisterin, the Burgermaster's wife, Ebers leaves behind him the world of antiquity, and deals with the heroic struggle against the Spanish rule made in 1547 by the city of Leiden. Great, a long and quiet novel, most carefully executed, is a minute picture of middle-class Nuremberg some centuries ago. Ein Wort, a word, only a word, also stands apart from the historical romances. It is a psychological and ethical story, working out the development of inconspicuous character. Both in Serapis and The Bride of the Nile, the victory of Christianity over heathenism is celebrated. Not less interesting than his fiction is his book of travels called Durch Gosen zum Sinai, Through Goshen to Sinai. 
In 1889, on account of his health, Ebers resigned his professorship. He now passes his winters in Munich, where his life is that of a scholar and a writer. The Arrival at Babylon From An Egyptian Princess Seven weeks later, a long line of chariots and riders of every description wound along the great highway that led from the west to Babylon, the gigantic city which could be seen from a long distance. Nitetis, the Egyptian princess, sat in a gilt four-wheeled chariot called a Harmamaxa. The cushions were covered with gold brocade, the roof was supported by wooden columns, its sides could be closed by means of curtains. Her companions, the Persian nobles, the dethroned king of Lydia and his son, rode by the side of her chariot. Fifty carriages and six hundred sumpter horses followed, and the regiment of Persian soldiers on splendid horses preceded the procession. The road lay along the Euphrates, through luxuriant fields of wheat, barley, and sesame, which yielded two or even three hundredfold. Slender date palms, with heavy clusters of fruit, stood in the fields, which were intersected in all directions by canals and conduits. Although it was winter, the sun shone warm and clear in the cloudless sky. The mighty river was crowded with barges and boats, which brought the produce of the Armenian highlands to the Mesopotamian plain, and forwarded to Babylon the greater part of the wares which were brought to Tapsacus from Greece. Engines, pumps, and water-wheels poured refreshing moisture on the fields and plantations along the banks, which were dotted with numerous villages. Everything indicated that the capital of a civilized and well-governed country was close at hand. The carriage and suit of Nitetis stopped before a long building of brick covered with bitumen, by the side of which grew numerous plane trees. Croesus was helped from his horse, approached the carriage of the Egyptian princess, and cried to her, We have reached the last station-house. The high tower that stands out against the horizon is the famous Tower of Bel, like your pyramids one of the greatest achievements of mortal hands. Before the sun sets we shall reach the brazen gates of Babylon. Permit me to help you from the carriage and to send your women to you into the house. Today you must dress yourself according to the custom of Persian queens, so that you may be pleasant in the eyes of Cambyses. In a few hours you will stand before your husband. How pale you are! See that your women skillfully paint joyous excitement on your cheeks. The first impression is often decisive, and this is the case with your future husband more than with anyone else. If, as I do not doubt, you please him at first sight, you have won his heart forever. If you displease him, he will, in accordance with his rough habits, scarcely deign to look on you again with kindness. Courage, my daughter. Above all things, remember what I have taught you. Nitetis wiped away a tear and returned, How shall I thank you for all your kindness, Croesus, my second father, my protector and adviser? Oh, do not ever desert me. When the path of my poor life passes through sorrow and grief, 
remain my guide and protector, as you have been during this long journey over dangerous mountain passes. Thank you, my father, thank you a thousand times. With these words, the girl put her beautiful arms round the old man's neck and kissed him like an affectionate daughter. When she entered the court of the gloomy house, a man came towards her, followed by a train of Asiatic serving women. The leader, the chief eunuch, one of the most important Persian court officials, was tall and stout. There was a sweet smile on his beardless face, valuable rings hung from his ears, his arms and legs, his neck, his long womanish garments were covered with gold ornaments, and his stiff artificial curls were surrounded by a purple fillet and sent forth a pungent odour. Bogies, for this was the eunuch's name, bowed respectfully to the Egyptian and said, holding his flashy hand covered with rings before his mouth, Cambyses, the ruler of the world, sends me to meet you, O queen, that I may refresh your heart with the dew of his greetings. He further sends you through me, his poorest slave, the garments of Persian women, that you may approach the gate of Achaemenidae in Median dress, as beseems the wife of the greatest of rulers. These women, your servants, await your commands. They will transform you from an Egyptian emerald into a Persian diamond. Bogies drew back, and with a condescending movement of his hand, allowed the host of the inn to present the princess with a most tastefully arranged basket of fruit. Nitetis thanked both men with friendly words, entered the house, and tearfully put off the robes of her home. The thick plate, the mark of an Egyptian princess, was unfastened, and strange hands clad her in Median fashion. Meanwhile, her companions commanded a meal to be prepared. Nimble servants fetched chairs, tables, and golden utensils from the wagon. The cooks bustled about, and were so ready and eager to help each other, that soon, as if by magic, a splendidly laid table where nothing was wanting, down to the very flowers, awaited the hungry travellers. The same luxury had been displayed during the whole journey, for the sumpter horses that followed the royal travellers carried every imaginable convenience, from gold-woven waterproof tents down to silver footstools, and the carts that accompanied them bore bakers, cooks, cup-bearers, carvers, men to prepare ointment, wreath-winders, and hairdressers. Well-appointed inns were established at regular intervals along the high road. Here the horses that had fallen on the way were replaced by fresh ones. Shady trees offered a pleasant shelter from the heat of the sun, and on the mountains the fires of the inns protected the traveller from cold and snow. The Persian inns, which resembled our post-houses, were first established by Cyrus the Great, who sought to shorten the enormous distances between the different parts of his realm by means of well-kept roads. He had also organized a regular postal service. At every station the riders with their knapsacks found substitutes on fresh horses ready for instant departure, who, after receiving the letters which were to be forwarded, galloped off post-haste, and when they reached the next inn threw their knapsacks to other riders who stood in readiness. 
These couriers were called Angeris, and were considered the swiftest horsemen in the world. When the company, who had been joined by Bogies the eunuch, rose from table, the door of the inn opened. A long-drawn sigh of admiration was heard, for Nitetis stood before the Persians in the splendid Median court dress, proudly exultant in the consciousness of her beauty, and yet suffused with blushes at her friend's astonishment. The servants involuntarily prostrated themselves in the Asiatic manner, but the noble Archimenidae bowed low and reverently. It was as if the princess had laid aside all shyness with the simple dress of her home, and assumed the pride and dignity of a queen with the silken garments, heavy with gold and jewels, of a Persian princess. The deep respect which had just been shown her seemed to please her. With a condescending movement of her hand she thanked her admiring friends. Then she turned to the chief eunuch and said to him kindly but proudly, You have done your duty. I am not dissatisfied with the robes and the slaves you have provided for me. I shall duly praise your care to my husband. Meanwhile, receive this golden chain as a sign of my gratitude. The powerful overseer of the king's wives kissed her hand and silently accepted the gift. None of his charges had yet treated him with such pride. All the wives whom Cambyses had owned till now were Asiatics, and as they were acquainted with the full power of the chief eunuch, they were accustomed to do all they could to win his favour by means of flattery and submission. Bogies again bowed low to Nitetis, but without paying any further attention to him, she turned to Croesus and said in a low tone, I cannot thank you, my gracious friend, with word or gift for what you have done for me. It will be owing to you alone if my life at this court becomes, if not happy, at least peaceful. Then she continued in a louder voice, audible to her travelling companions, Take this ring which has not left my hand since our departure from Egypt. Its value is small, its significance great. Pythagoras, the noblest of all the Greeks, gave it to my mother when he came to Egypt to listen to the wise teachings of our priests. She gave it to me when I left home. There is a seven engraved on this simple turquoise. This number, which is indivisible, represents the health of body and soul, for nothing is less divisible than health. If but a small portion of the body suffers, the whole body is ill. If one evil thought nestles in our heart, the harmony of the soul is disturbed. Whenever you look at this seven, let it remind you that I wish you perfect enjoyment of bodily health, and the continuance of that benignity which makes you the most virtuous and therefore the most healthy of men. No thanks, my father, for I should remain in your debt, though I should restore to Croesus the wealth of Croesus. Gyges, take this Lydian lyre of ivory, and when its strings give forth music, remember the giver. To you, Sopirus, I give this chain, for I have noticed that you are the most faithful friend of your friends, and we Egyptians put bonds and ropes into the fair hands of our goddess of love and friendship, beautiful Hathor, as a symbol of her binding qualities. 
To you, Darius, the friend of Egyptian lore and the starry firmament, I give for a keepsake this golden ring, on which you will find the zodiac engraved by a skilful hand. Bartia, my dear brother-in-law, you shall receive the most precious treasure I possess. Take this amulet of blue stone. My sister Tacod put it round my neck when for the last time I pressed a kiss upon her lips before we fell asleep. She told me this talisman would bring sweet happiness in love to him who wore it. She wept as she spoke, Bartia. I do not know what she was thinking of, but I hope I am carrying out her wish when I lay this treasure in your hand. Think that Thakad is giving it to you through me, her sister, and think sometimes of the Garden of Sais. She had spoken in Greek till then. Now she turned to the servants, who were waiting at a respectful distance, and said in broken Persian, you too must accept my thanks. You shall receive a thousand gold staters. Bogies, she added, turning to the eunuch, I command you to see that the sum is distributed not later than the day after tomorrow. Lead me to my carriage, Croesus. The old man hastened to comply with her request. While he conducted Nitetis to the carriage, she pressed his arm against her breast and whispered, are you satisfied with me, my father? I tell you, maiden, returned the old man, you will be the first at this court after the king's mother, for true regal pride is on your brow, and you possess the art of doing great things with small means. Believe me, a trifling gift, chosen as you can choose, will cause greater pleasure to a nobleman than a heap of gold flung down before him. The Persians are accustomed to bestow and receive costly gifts. They know how to enrich one another. You will teach them to make each other happy. How beautiful you are! Is that right, or do you desire higher cushions? But what is that? Do you not see clouds of dust strolling hither from the town? That must be Cambyses who is coming to meet you. Keep yourself upright, girl. Above all, try to bear your husband's glance and return it. Few can bear the fire of his eye. If you succeed in meeting it without fear or embarrassment, you have conquered. Courage, courage, my daughter. May Aphrodite adorn you with her loveliest charms. To horse, my friends. I think the king is coming to meet us. Nitetis sat very erect in the golden carriage, and pressed her hands on her heart. The cloud of dust came nearer and nearer. Now bright sunbeams were reflected in the weapons of the approaching host, and darted from the cloud of dust like lightning from a stormy sky. Now the cloud divided, and figures could be distinguished. Now the approaching procession vanished behind the thick bushes at a turn of the road. And now, not a hundred feet away, the galloping riders were seen distinctly as they approached nearer and nearer. The whole procession seemed to consist of a gay crowd of horses, men, purple, gold, silver, and jewels. More than two hundred riders, all on snow-white Nicene steeds, whose bridles and caparisons glittered with gold bells and buckles, feathers, tassels, and embroidery, 
were followed by a man who was often carried away by the powerful coal-black horse on which he rode, but who generally proved to the unmanageable, foaming animal that he was strong enough to tame its wildness. The rider, whose knees pressed the horse so that the animal trembled and panted, wore a garment with a scarlet and white pattern, which was embroidered with silver eagles and falcons. His trousers were of purple, his boots of yellow leather. He wore a golden belt round his waist, in which was a short dagger-like sword, whose hilt and sheath were encrusted with jewels. The rest of his dress resembled Bartia's. His tiara also was surrounded by the blue and white fillet of the Achimenidae. Thick, jet-black hair streamed from it. A thick beard of the same colour covered the whole lower portion of his hale, rigid face. His eyes were even darker than his hair and beard, and glittered with a fire that burned instead of warming. A deep red scar, caused by the sword of a Masagetian warrior, marked the lofty brow, large aquiline nose, and thin lips of the rider. His whole bearing bore the stamp of great power and immoderate pride. Nitetis could not turn her eyes from his form. She had never seen any one like him. She thought she saw the essence of all manliness in the intensely proud face. It seemed to her as if the whole world, but especially she herself, had been created to serve this man. She feared him, and yet her humble woman's heart longed to cling to this strong man as the vine clings to the elm. She did not know whether the father of all evil, terrible Seth, or the giver of all light, great Ra, was to imagined in this form. As light and shade alternate, when the heavens are clouded at noon, so did deep red and ashy pallor appear on her face. She forgot the precepts of her fatherly friend, and yet, when Cambyses forced his wild snorting steed to stand still by the side of her carriage, she gazed breathlessly into the flashing eyes of the man, for she knew that he was the king, though no one had told her. The stern face of the ruler of half the world softened more and more the longer she, urged by a strange impulse, endured his piercing glance. At last he waved his hand in welcome and rode towards her companions, who had dismounted, and who either prostrated themselves in the dust before the king, or stood bowing low in accordance with Persian custom, hiding their hands in the sleeves of their garments. Now he himself sprang from his horse. At the same time all his followers swung themselves out of the saddle. The carpet-bearers in his train spread, quick as thought, a heavy purple carpet on the road, so that the king's foot should not touch the dust. A few seconds later, Cambyses greeted his friends and relations with a kiss. Then he shook Croesus's hand, and ordered him to mount again, and accompany him to Nitetis as interpreter. The highest dignitaries hastened up and helped the king to mount. He gave the signal, and the whole procession moved on. Croesus rode beside Cambyses by the golden carriage. "'She is beautiful and pleasing to my heart,' cried the Persian to his Lydian friend. "'Now, 
translate to me faithfully what she says in answer to my questions, for I understand only Persian, Babylonian, and Median. Nitetis had understood his words. Inexpressible joy filled her heart, and before Croesus could answer the king, she said in a low tone, in broken Persian, How shall I thank the gods who let me find favor in your eyes? I am not ignorant of the language of my lord, for this noble old man has instructed me in the Persian language during our long journey. Pardon me if I can answer in broken words only. My time for instruction was short, and my understanding is only that of a poor, ignorant maiden. The usually stern king smiled. His vanity was flattered by Nitetis' eagerness to gain his approbation, and this diligence in a woman seemed as strange as it was praiseworthy to the Persian, who was used to see women grow up in ignorance and idleness, thinking of nothing but dress and intrigue. He therefore answered with evident satisfaction. I am glad that I can speak to you without an interpreter. Continue to try to learn the beautiful language of my fathers. My companion Croesus shall remain your teacher in the future. Your command fills me with joy, said the old man, for I could not desire a more grateful or more eager pupil than the daughter of Amasis. She confirms the ancient fame of Egyptian wisdom, returned the king, and I think that she will soon understand and accept with all her soul the teachings of the Magi who will instruct her in our religion. Nitetis looked down. The dreaded moment was approaching. She was henceforth to serve strange gods in place of the Egyptian deities. Cambyses did not observe her emotion and continued. My mother, Cassandani, shall initiate you in your duties as my wife. I will conduct you to her myself tomorrow. I repeat what you accidentally overheard. You please me. Look to it that you keep my favor. We will try to make you like our country, and because I am your friend, I advise you to treat Bogies, whom I send to meet you, graciously, for you will have to obey him in many things, as he is the superintendent of the harem. He may be the head of the women's house, returned Nitetis, but it seems to me that no mortal but you has a right to command your wife. Give but a sign and I will obey, but consider that I am a princess, and come from a land where weak woman shares the rights of strong men, that the same pride fills my breast which shines in your eyes, my beloved. I will gladly obey you, the great man, my husband and ruler, but it is as impossible for me to sue for the favour of the unmanliest of men, a bought servant, as it is for me to obey his commands. Cambyses' astonishment and satisfaction increased. He had never heard any woman save his mother speak like this, and the subtle way in which Nitetis unconsciously recognized and exalted his power over her whole existence satisfied his self-complacency. The proud man liked her pride. He nodded approvingly and said, You are right. I will have a special house prepared for you. I alone will command you. The pleasant house in the hanging gardens shall be prepared for you today. I thank you a thousand times, cried Nitetis. 
if you but knew how you delight me by your gift. Your brother Barcha told me much of the hanging gardens, and none of the splendours of your great realm pleased us as much as the love of the king who built the green mountain. Tomorrow you will be able to enter your new dwelling. Tell me how you and the Egyptians liked my envoys. How can you ask? Who could become acquainted with noble Croesus without loving him? Who could help admiring the excellent qualities of the young heroes, your friends? They have become dear to our house, especially your beautiful brother Barcha, who won all hearts. The Egyptians are averse to strangers, but whenever Barcha appeared among them, a murmur of admiration arose from the gasping throng. At these words the king's face grew dark. He gave his horse a heavy blow so that it reared, turned its head, galloped in front of his retinue, and in a few minutes reached the walls of Babylon. The walls seemed perfectly impregnable, for they were two hundred cubits high, and their breadth was so great that two carriages could easily pass each other. Two hundred and fifty high towers surmounted and fortified this huge rampart. A greater number of these citadels would have been necessary if Babylon had not been protected on one side by impenetrable marshes. The enormous city lay on both sides of the Euphrates. It was more than nine miles in circumference, and the walls protected buildings which surpassed even the pyramids and the temples of Thebes and Memphis in size. Nitetis looked with astonishment at this huge gate. With joyful emotion she gazed at the long, wide street, which was festively decked in her honour. End of section 3